Looking for an assist with your credit card, but you can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to Culture Calculus. I'm Kavitha Davidson, joined as always by my co-host Jason Jones. What's up, Jason? Not much, not much. Just, you know, I'm actually recording on my birthday, so this was- Happy birthday! Hey! I'm old now, so I'm just <laughs> going to have some fun with this. And, you know, my son's birthday is like two weeks before mine, so really no one gives a shit about my birthday, you know, <laughs> everything. And it's like, oh, yeah, hey. So <laughs> just a, just another regular day for me. Yeah, apparently I was set to be born. Like, I was due on my dad's birthday, and I was born a week earlier, um, which is a very good thing because both of us are birthday bitches. And, like no way in hell that we were about to share that shit so i was supposed to be born on my mom's birthday and i was mm-hmm. born two days later apparently i was so stubborn that <laughs> they induced labor and she said i just refused to move i was comfortable <laughs> and they were just like we don't understand why he won't move <laughs> uh i feel like we should do a whole podcast just on that but this week we are very excited to welcome the one and only ryan s clark to the podcast ryan clark covering the new seattle kraken ryan what's up uh not much it's hearing the stories of birthdays which jason i i care about your birthday so happy birthday <laughs> thank you <laughs> Uh, well, so first of all, you look like you're in a hotel room. Where are you right now, Ryan? Uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, because tonight they play the Philadelphia Flyers. Awesome. Fun. Welcome out east. First of all, Ryan, you've covered the NHL for a number of years now. This is your first experience covering an expansion team, yes? Yes, it is. What has that been like? You know, it's different for so many reasons. And, you know, let's start here. The thing that you take for granted covering a regular team that you don't have to worry about it's all new here. So something like a mascot, for example, a mascot's been in existence most places, and maybe a team that's you know been a while for a, been around for a while doesn't have a mascot. They introduce one. It's something, but it's not like a thing thing. Whereas if here, it's like, ooh, what's it going to be? What's its name going to be? Like, could they use Sasquatch, the old Sonics mascot? But then like it's other things as well that you you also have to look at. So like right now. Um, we're looking at doing a big story for a little bit later this week about like, what are those things like your end game hockey operations? Like what does a Kraken game look like when they've not had a home game at their actual home rink because their preseason has been at three different rinks all across Washington. So like, how does that work? But then like, it's other things too, such as like, how do you tell the story of a team that still doesn't even know its own identity? And how do you go about, sort of like figuring these things out. So it's just, it's been interesting because like it's all new and it's all news and it's stuff that if you're in another market, you just, you kind of know already. Are you like aware of the fact that, you know, you just talked about how you're covering a team that has no history and you are part of writing that history. Don't really look at it like that, to be honest. Um, Just because I I have to figure out the best way to say this. 
sometimes we as journalists get a little bit too caught up in look at me, look at me, as opposed to just simply doing the work. Mm-hmm. And so with this, it's just a cool thing to do, but you want to do the sort of stories that make people remember like what makes us awesome. And so to have this role where you're part of, you know, covering history, I guess maybe when I'm like old and gray, I'll look at it that way. But for now, it's just kind of like you're fortunate to do it. But at the same time, it's no different than, you know, what Jason would be doing with the Kings or what you do with the podcast. Like you're still telling a story and you're just hoping that you're telling the best stories possible. How do you tell that story with like no background? I mean, things like team chemistry and <laughs> usually you have something to fall back on. You can say, well, you know, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, for you, it can really be context, right? There's literally zero yeah. context here. Yeah. For you, it's like, well, over the last couple of weeks, as we've all gotten to know each other, we seem to you know, <laughs> just how do you tell that story without that context and just that history and background? But that's just it, is you tell it with the understanding that those things don't exist. And you tell it with the idea of, like, you think about what some of those players were before they came to Seattle. Like, what profile of player were they? So I won't get, like, too into the weeds about, like, different player styles or anything like that. But there are some players where their style of play meshes with someone else's. And then you think about how it fits in with the overall system. And so you explain it like that, but it all comes with the idea of, hey, there's only so much time that, that's been had. And so you look at these first few games, like, yes, we do a story after the first game in franchise history because it's a monumental event. We do a story after the first win in franchise history because, again, monumental event. But when you look at the game against the Columbus Blue Jackets, it's a game that we didn't write a story after because, yes, they lost a third-period lead and lose in overtime, but if someone's like, well, what's the big picture? It's like there is no big picture. I mean, yes, the third period's been an issue for them, the last three games for different reasons. But you can't sit here and say after three games, like, here's something definitive. No one knows. Now, like, yes, if it was another team that had all these expectations because they did these things in free agency, they had some really good incoming talent, and they were having a a poor start, kind of like what we're seeing with the Chicago Blackhawks, then sure, go ahead. But it comes with the understanding that it's new. It's not supposed to be perfect right off the jump. Well, in addition to covering a brand new team, you are living in a brand new city. How is Seattle treating you? It's kind of brand new, but it kind of isn't because I lived here once before. I covered the Washington Huskies. And then the Athletics said, hey, do you want to cover the NHL? And it's like, sure. And then this time they're like, hey, do you want to cover the Kraken and be a national writer? And it's just like, gee, I don't know. Let me think. And so to be back, it's so different because the first time people were – they were excited about the idea of hockey. Like, could this happen? Could this not? And now that it's going to happen, and in this case is happening, like people are excited about it. So you think about Sunday night football when the Seahawks lose, people are just like, you know, this, this bad thing happens to the Seahawks. The Kraken can't win in the third period. Like it's now become like UW and Washington state struggled over the weekend. Like it's now kind of become part of like this lexicon, but people here are extremely excited about it for, you know, a lot of different reasons. And whether it's looking at your feed, whether you are walking down the street driving and you see people with hats and t-shirts, or even here in Philadelphia, I was just driving back from morning skate with a friend of mine. And we saw a couple where he was wearing like a Mariner hoodie and she was wearing like a Kraken t-shirt. And it's just like, that's become something you're seeing, not only just in Seattle, but really any city the Kraken's played in so far, like Nashville, Columbus, same thing, Vegas. It was 
it was everywhere in Vegas, naturally, but you're, you're seeing a lot of it. What is the hardest or the least ordinary thing about covering an expansion team? I think nothing really. That's probably a terrible answer. But it, it, it's genuinely nothing because like, you can do whatever you want in the sense of like how you cover this team, how you write about this team, because it goes back to what you and Jason said earlier about there is no history. There is no context. No, yes, they're going to be responsible. And you're not going to do anything haphazard. But at the same time, like you can write and approach things so differently to where it's just like, yeah, it's just, it's fun. So there's nothing really like stressful or, or whatever about it. The only thing would maybe be just, hey, the trip itself, because, you know, you think about it going from Vegas to Nashville to Columbus to Philadelphia to New Jersey, like the travel is just kind of bizarre because you're so used to being in geographic clusters. But honestly, this has been a lot of fun. It's been really easygoing and it's, it's straightforward, but it's straightforward in the sense of like everything is within the realm of possibility. I hope that is not the worst answer of all time. I like a politician. It's like, we do have an answer, but we don't have an answer. <laughs> is that part of the part of the fun too, that you don't have an answer to some things just because there is no answer? Just, I mean, I'm not a, exactly frame this, but there is no like, you can't, you can't say there's bias or, hey, I, you know, I know this guy. I know how you were. Just, is that just part of the fun because you're kind of learning as you go? Well, it's more just the idea you don't know what to be. So, like, let's take – I don't know if you ever heard of this team. They're in the NBA called the Sacramento Kings. And, yes, I'm being sarcastic here. So, like, let's take the Kings, for example, where we've all asked the question, how are they remained in the lottery, but yet they're a team that it seems like they can't necessarily find that star like everybody else has. Like, when you cover a team like the Kings, there's all these years of just different things that you can look at and breaking it down. So that way, like when you get to the draft, like you can cover it objectively, but there's still kind of this understanding if you're the fan of like, well, if they haven't done this in X amount of years. What makes this year different? Whereas if a team like the Kraken, because there is none of that, there's just this idea of you don't know what direction they could go. And so it makes it like so different and, and so intriguing in its own right. So I, I hope that makes sense. And I hope that yeah. answered it. But yeah, it. I've been covering, I've covered an expansion team for 12 years. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and the Kings catching strays on a hockey podcast. <laughs> and not the LA Kings either, but the Sacramento nope. Kings. Nope. Well, so the Kraken just had their first ever game. It was a loss, unfortunately, but they also did just win their first game as well. What was that first? What, well, let's, let's start at the beginning. What was that first game, even though they lost that game? What was the energy like in that building? What was that experience like? It's not even the building. It's everything leading up to it because you have four players who go into COVID protocol. Mm. One is able to be at morning skate. The other three, they say, no, they're not going to be there. And then a few hours later, you get... A, a text from a source saying like, oh no, they're, they're going to play. They just cleared. Like they just landed in a private plane here in Vegas. And so it's like, you have this like sort of like chaos going on. And then you get into the arena for the game, well, not even into the arena. You're walking outside the arena. And so there's a place near the arena called Deer House where there's like a legion of Kraken fans, like having fun, drinking drinks, eating food, whatever it is they're doing, but they're enjoying it. And then you get in the arena and put it to you like this. T-Mobile Arena is like a club. And when you look at the NHL, it's what you would expect of an arena environment. You're going to hear top 40. You're going to see like some family-friendly things, whatever. Like there's some few things that are unique and local, but for the most part, like it's all kind of 
you know, it, it, what you see in one arena, you might see in another. Vegas, like you've got like loud music, like they're playing like just things that just, they, they felt so hard that like press row shakes. And then you get to the game, then I don't know if you saw it, but like they have a pregame thing in Vegas where they have a man in a night costume skating on ice. And he took on an on ice graphic of a Kraken and melted the Kraken. And like people lost their damn minds over it. <laughs> and like, but, but that's just like what it was. And in the game itself, like they go down three nothing. And of course, people are just kind of like, um, okay, not the greatest start in franchise history. And then they come back to tie it and people are just like, oh my God, this is our year. And then they <laughs> lose the lead 30 seconds later. And then it's just kind of like, well, damn, wasn't that thrilling? And so emotional is just a way of putting it because depending upon the hour, you just didn't know what was going to happen. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but you can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And listen, like it it is also just really nice to have hockey back. I'm just going to say that in general. Seattle has some of the most passionate sports fans in general of any market. Seattle has also been a team that when it comes to their sports fandom has been put through the ringer. They've gone through a lot of heartbreak. They have lost some, some, some what do you mean, beloved Kavita? franchises. How, how ready was this fan base for a team? Ready for a few reasons. You know, first is you talk about the whole, the Sonics left and yes, there's university of Washington men's basketball. There's women's basketball, but that whole for the winter sports scene professionally, once the Seahawks season is over, it was there. And so to know that you can have that, it's something that people looked at, okay, we're finally back on having a full calendar of professional sports. But then you think about the other thing that's out there that can't be ignored. What does this mean for the NBA coming back to Seattle? And the ownership group, Oakview Group, has been really honest in the last several months about saying they want to get an NBA team back in Seattle. They've talked about when you look at Climate Pledge Arena, how there is an NBA dressing room right there. I mean, yes, you have everything capable for the WNBA, the NHL, concerts, you name it. But like there is space carved out for an NBA team to come there if and when that time does come. And so that's just it is like for this city, like people are excited about it, but how it answers your question, it's for a variety of different reasons because one, it's something new. Two, it's the NHL. Three, it fills that winter hole. And four, it's the idea of like, well, if this goes well and the NBA is looking, what's stopping the NBA from coming back here? And the people who've wondered that, there's been people who said, but so what does that mean for the NHL? Like, does this mean the NHL kind of gets frozen out in a matter of speaking, but like they can both coexist because like that's the thing about a place like Seattle is it doesn't matter what's going on. People are going to go, they're going to attend things. And besides, like if Key Arena in its heyday was busy with one team and the limitations it faced as a building, imagine what Climate Pledge could be like now that it's the state-of-the-art thing that's going to have everything under the sun in addition to having the NBA, NHL, and then later on WNBA on top of whatever concerts and acts they're going to bring in later down the road. 
And with everything being so new, just how much of what you do you feel like will eventually just be kind of education? Because I remember back in the early 90s when L.A. got Wayne Gretzky and the newspapers would run these big old things about this is what hockey is. Here's what the positions are. Here's what they're trying to do. And then when they made the, the, uh, the, the Stanley Cup finals with Gretzky, they had to rerun everything again. This is the position Wayne Gretzky. All we knew was Wayne Gretzky was the best player. And so we didn't care about anything else. <laughs> so, I mean, how much is this being in Seattle, educating the people in Seattle? Hey, this is what's going on out here. It's a little bit of a different dynamic because you had junior hockey here for so many years between the Everett Silvertips, which are north of the city, and then the Seattle Thunderbirds which are just southeast in the suburb of Kent. And so there are people who had a familiarity with it. Um, there have been NHL players who've come from the state of Washington in the Seattle Metro. And so not only that, but you've also had college hockey at the University of Alaska and the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And then there is a growing youth scene in hockey in Seattle that's been around for some time. So like, it's always sort of like been there and you can't really say under the surface it just maybe wasn't as highlighted compared to basketball or football. But as it relates to just how people are learning, I mean, it's really one of those things where there's a lot of range is the best way to put it. Like there, there's variation. And so you have the people who they've been lifelong fans. You have the people who they've been fans for a while and know a lot, but are still learning. And then you have the fans that are new, who you know, they're starting to learn and introduce everything to them. And so the reality is, is like the way this team is covered like there is something for all those different crowds. Like if you're this person who's new, like there's a place for you to maybe learn things that you didn't know existed. If you're somewhere in the middle, you can get that. And if you're the fan who, you know, you knew a lot of these things, you can get that too. So that's really probably the best way to describe it is just, there's a lot of variation. Why Seattle? I mean, we've had conversations for years about other, about other cities, you know, Quebec is, is constantly thrown around. Why was Seattle the right choice for an expansion team at this time? A couple of reasons. You know, the first is if you're looking at expanding into an American market, not necessarily North American, if you include Canada, but an American market, you're looking for all these different things. And with Seattle, you get geography and the fact that by coming to Seattle, you now get a chance to have an NHL team in a major market like Seattle. Their games are shown in Portland, which gives you another major market. You're able to get those two states, parts of Idaho, and then you get Alaska, which not to sound super nerdy here, but when you think about television, blackout zones and rights restrictions, Alaska w- was the last unclaimed state. Mm-hmm. Because, like, even Hawaii has like its own territory. Hawaii, I want to say, is either ducks or kings is what they fall under. But with Alaska, there was really no one. So you could live in Anchorage. One night you get a Bruins game. Next night you get a Rangers game. Next night you get someone else. And so it gives the NHL not only a chance to expand its footprint, but you're doing it with a major city being that starting point, And then it just sort of spreads. Another thing that really makes sense as to why Seattle is this, it's the idea that like, when you look at where this league can grow, there's only so many areas and cities. Like you've seen it grow in the Midwest, but there are people who go, why not Kansas city? And maybe that happens. People have asked about Houston because you've seen the AHL there, but then it's that question of like, okay, how well could hockey work in a place like Houston? Whereas if in Seattle, like we talked about with the winter sports gap, like it was a place that already had a hole. You knew people were going to be interested. You already had a history of just junior hockey. So it made sense. And not only that, but the NHL, we had this in a story recently, like the NHL knew, like there were people who were interested in owning a team. 
And then there are people who knew that they wanted to bring a team to Seattle, that the league was interested. It was just a matter of really getting two things. One, an ownership group that was committed. And second, an ownership group that was committed to building a ring. And once they found those two things, it was just really a matter of going through all the proper channels and, and processes. And then next thing you know, it, there's a ticket drive. And then shortly there, well, not shortly, but within a few years, all of a sudden <laughs> they're playing a game. Just for the growth of the league, how big is it that you've got now, not just Seattle, also Las Vegas, you know, West Coast, or I guess Vegas isn't technically the West Coast, but Western region. And as a Western West Coast native, we didn't really think about hockey. But to see, you know, to, to go with the Ducks, to go with the Kings, you know, you get Las Vegas, you get Seattle, just what's it mean for the league as a whole to get more of a footprint in the, you know, the Pacific time zone? I'm also just going to jump in and say that warm weather hockey is a little bit of an abomination. So go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting when you put it like that, because it was really the 1990s where the league took off in the sense of expansion. And you think back to when those teams started to where they are now, the Coyotes relocate. And then who's the most famous Arizonan in the league? Austin Matthews. You think about when the Stars relocated to Dallas. And now it seems like every draft year you hear a story about someone growing up in the suburbs. Like Seth Jones was split between Dallas and Denver in his childhood, but he's another player that sort of comes to mind in the sense of those, those sort of players. Think about Florida as well. I mean, Jacob Chikrin, Shane Gossett are here. They're from South Florida. So the reason that's important is if you look at the NHL, this is still a league that for all intents and purposes, there's a lot of competition for athletes because you're getting young men and women who want to play football, basketball, baseball, the whole nine. And hockey sort of that sport that like you really have to want to do it among other things. And so to be in a region like Seattle, like it's, it's immense because I mean, one, you're on your footprint, but two, like you said, you're becoming more of a visible presence in, in Western states in the Pacific time zone, because we think about the television deal when NBC had it, what did we always see? It was original six. It was the East coast teams. Meanwhile, the Vegas golden Knights, while they were on TV, they are in the conference final discussion and they're not necessarily going to be on television all the time. Dallas Stars made it to a cup final. There's no guarantee they're going to be on TV. Same thing with a team like the Colorado Avalanche, which has one of the best players in the league. And they've just now becoming more of effective, like a factor, excuse me, on national television. So when you're talking about growing your game, it's huge because put it to you like this and let's use the NBA. Cause again, they're both 82 games in a season. Like, yes, for all the conversation about teams like, the Knicks, the Celtics, the Sixers, you think about the West Coast, the Lakers matter, the Kings matter, the Suns matter, like the Spurs, even though they're west of the Mississippi and you can't really call them quote unquote west, west like you can those other teams, it's still a tension in a market that may not have existed. And if you're the NHL, that's how you grow your game and that's how you remain visible and present. I'm old enough to remember when... NHL expansion was not, uh, how am I going to say this? I'm old enough to remember a time when it was not a given that an expansion team would succeed. <laughs> like we all remember the Atlanta Thrashers. Has the Porter NHL, we talked out. about this, pour one out for the Atlanta Thrashers, guys. And we talked about this a little bit before we, we, we started recording on the pod, but has the NHL learned from its mistakes in previous expansion years? Obviously, Vegas has been extremely successful, and I completely will count myself among those people who didn't think hockey in in Las Vegas would work. Um, And I've been proven completely wrong about that. So what has the NHL learned from its past mistakes to now seemingly usher in this new era where 
where expansion can be wildly successful. Here's the thing. It's like anything. It comes back to this one thing, and maybe this is a little bit of a cynical answer. It, well, a couple of things. It's about money and the sustainability of your business. So like, let's just take away the fact that it's a team where there's players and fans. Like, at the end of the day, it is a business. And the way the old expansion rules used to work, essentially you could protect all of your top players and what would be left over is a group of players who weren't in that conversation. And so hypothetically, if you take, let's say, what's considered to be the five most expendable players for every team and you put them together where there's not really someone who's going to score a lot of goals or you're, you have a star goalie or you know, strong or solid defenseman, it's going to be a product that it's going to take years to get off the ground. And while you're able to get that sort of patience in a place like Nashville and in and, and other locations, there's no guarantee that you're going to get that now. And if you're the league and you see what happened in Atlanta, like you've lost one of the major media markets there is. Whereas if now, and there have been so many people around the league who've made this joke, if you are getting a $650 million expansion fee from an ownership group, you better make sure they're good right off the bat because like, they're going to have to make a return on investment. And so when you look at the way the rules are now, the rules are set up to where you can get some good players. So, for example, when you look at the Kraken's expansion draft, Yanni Gord was on a team in Tampa where there's so much star power that, like, you're going to have to give up someone. Back in the day, someone like Yanni Gord might have still stayed uh, in, in Tampa or maybe they trade him for something else so they can get something in return. But And not saying they couldn't have done that now, but Tampa had so much talent, they were going to lose someone. It was the same thing with other teams too, whether it be the St. Louis Blues, whether it be the Dallas Stars, whether it be the Calgary Flames, which is how they got their captain, Mark Giordano, here in Seattle. And so like, that's just it. It's like, it's realizing that it's a business, but also when you're having an ownership group saying, we're going to fork over $650 million. And while everyone in the league is getting a cut of that, if you are the NHL, it's like, how do you put out a product that you know not only people are going to care about because of the newness, but you make them competitive enough to where people are going to go to games. Because everybody keeps saying it. The first year of an expansion team, in some ways, is like printing money. Whether you go 0 and 82 or 82 and 0, fans are going to go to the game. It's the hot thing. It's the new thing. But it's about how do you build that from year two going forward, which is why the expansion draft and the rules are so important. Because once you have that foundation, it's easier to build from hey we need a few pieces as opposed to the next year of, hey, we need several pieces, but who's going to want to come here? Because while we might have cap space, someone might say, you know what, I'd rather stay where I'm at, make less money and win and be in a good situation as opposed to, hey, I'll come there where, well, I'll get more money. There's no guarantee that we're going to be good right away. Right. Well, in addition to this being a brand new team in this market, how, how much of a game changer is it for this team in particular that ESPN, and I know they're a competitor, but that ESPN is now broadcasting hockey again. Look, it's massive because the point that I was going to make in the first game story, but again, with everything going on with their roster and COVID, we'll save it for another time, is you think about that first game. Everybody was saying something about it. I mean, I mean, you look at social, and not that Twitter is the ultimate of barometers, but it is a barometer. And in that first game, like people who never talked about hockey before are talking about hockey. People are talking about the giant Kraken that they saw in pregame in Vegas. And the reality of it is this. When you're on NBCSN, 
and let's just take how they look at the Premier League. And I'm so sorry for getting nerdy about this, Jason. I am, but Kafiva and I are so used to being nerdy about stuff. Like, like you know, Kafiva and I talk on the phone. Like, we'll have these super nerdy conversations because, like, what we do. <laughs> so let's take how like NBCSN looked at the Premier League versus that of the NHL. You look at the Premier League, and it's not only a show and games, but it's wall-to-wall coverage to where you check out Peacock. There's a Premier League hub. They're using shows that the Premier League produces in England. Like if you live in the United States, you're going to get everything imaginable. Whereas if with the NHL, it's like you get Wednesday night hockey, you might get a Sunday night game, you might get a game at another time. And beyond the national game, which doesn't come until later in the season, that's kind of it. And not only that, but Jason, you can speak to this as well. You can be on the road, and there's no guarantee you're going to get NBCSN in your hotel room. Mm-hmm. Whereas if ESPN, ESPN is everywhere. Like, it is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so when you are on ESPN, it makes you visible. When you are on Turner, it makes you visible. Because, like, if you're on NBCSN, you can't get Charles Barkley to come out there and take pucks. Whereas if you're Turner, you can get Charles Barkley, you can get Shaq, you can get Kenny. I mean, you can get whoever you want. And if ESPN wants to do the same thing, they absolutely can. Because you think about what happened after they signed the deal. Stephen A. Smith is doing his five things he knows about hockey. And while it had a lot of opinion, guess what? Stephen A. Smith was talking about hockey. And no one can remember the last time that happened. And so, like, to be on ESPN, to be on Turner, it is a huge deal because it's the sort of visibility – they, they didn't really have, and we saw that yesterday, well, I guess Sunday, this, with the Chicago Sky and, and them winning the WNBA championship. Like, it was everywhere. And if they're not on ESPN, who's to say it gets that kind of attention? But because you're on ESPN, it makes a huge difference. Well, and look, it, it, it's, it wasn't really a, a well-kept secret that ESPN just stopped covering hockey because it had no financial stake in covering hockey it didn't have any of the broadcast rights and they laid off half i was i was at espn when when well two two major rounds of layoffs happened and one of them was basically 90 percent of their hockey staff by the way like half of them now write for the athletics so thank you there but oh it's like more than half like when you first come here it's like you look at everyone's files like i worked at espn i too worked at espn and i'm like i worked at a place that had espn on tv for the cable package like does that count but you know but the reality of it is this and you're absolutely right is hockey is a sport is such a challenging one because it's not like college football where for you, is it, if you are a news company, you know you need to cover college football. But if you're a rights holder, where do you put that emphasis? Is it on the sport as a whole, or do you try to micro, uh, do, you, do you take a micro approach where you're like, okay, let's get certain conferences? It's not like the NBA, where if you're going to cover sports in North America, you've got to have the NBA, you've got to have the NFL, you've got to have Major League Baseball. Whereas if, like, now by them getting the NHL back, like, yes, it not only brings more visibility like we said, but like it rounds out your overall coverage. Mm-hmm. And really it's kind of been an interesting lesson because you two know this better than anyone over the last 15 years. It seems like there's so much of an interest in what goes on within the media. We look at sites like awful announcing and how they, you know, chronicle things or better yet, we think about what happened with Maria Taylor and Rachel Nichols. And, you know, for the three of us, because this is what we do, it's one thing for us to talk about that. But like when you're hearing people who have no interest in our industry, 
suddenly go like, why is this the way it is? It gives you insight into people are becoming more educated about how it all works. And when you look at ESPN and you look at the NHL, that was the latest reflection of that. Like leagues are always going to want attention, but to get that attention, it helps if you're on networks and have broadcast partners that make the investment. Like it's like you look at the NFL for all the things the NFL has going on. You could argue its greatest masterstroke is it's not exclusive to just one entity. Like ESPN pays a lot of money. The ESPN gets the opportunity to have one game a week and they get highlights. Fox gets games, CBS gets games, NBC gets games. And of course there's the NFL network as well. But it's again, it's about how do you do the most for your business and, that's why when you look at ESPN getting any, we'll look at ESPN getting the NHL contract and thinking with Turner, that's just it. Is it's more visibility than ever before. Right. Switching gears a little bit, I do have yeah. I do have some like broad NHL. First of all, the NHL has announced, and you know we've all been talking about freaking Kyrie for way too long, in my opinion. But the NHL has announced that there are only four players in the NHL right now that are not vaccinated. As someone who is a national writer, Ryan, do you have theories as to why the NHL has managed to get such a high vaccination rate? And every time we talk about vaccination, I will always also be the person to point out that the WNBA reached 99% without needing a mandate. So like, let's just give those women their snaps. But yeah, do you, can you explain how the NHL got to where it is? Sure. So this was actually, I answered at NHL Media Day in Chicago. So we were able to speak with Bill Daly, the deputy commissioner. And he explained it in a way, as did players later on, that the way everything has been written, while it's not mandatory, the strong suggestion really does urge, if you don't do this, you're not going to get paid. And you really want to get someone to do something, take away their bank account. You'll get people to do whatever you want. And so with the league, they were able to get the success rate because one, players wanted to get paid. And two, if they didn't get the vaccine, then they run the risk of not only not paying, but forfeiting game checks. And as we've seen in some cases, there are teams that have said, if you're not going to get vaccinated, not only are we going to waive you, but we're not even going to play you in the American League until you go do this. Because it goes back to something larger. And this is something, you know, I think it's fair to go behind the curtain on this. But when you look at the way availability works, let's look at pre-COVID and, and right now. Pre-COVID, you can go inside of a dressing room, talk to players, do what you need to do, talk to coaches, whatever. Whereas if like now, you have to be six feet away. If you're occupying the same space as we did in Columbus. So there's a room, if you can picture it, like let's say standing in front of you, you can see the benches and you're, there's a hallway and you can see the, the, the Kraken's bench. In order for us to make a right to go into this room to do media availability, we have to wait till every Kraken player gets off the ice. So we are nowhere in close contact with them. And so when you look at how serious this league is taking COVID to the point where last year with its mandate, you couldn't sit next to someone on the team playing. Like, in, in the, like seriously, pre-COVID, on the team playing, players sit next to each other. They play cards. They tell stories. They do whatever. But now, like, that has changed so much to where last year everyone – saw firsthand how serious this league took it. And so now if you're the league and you're saying we have to make this mandatory without really saying you need to make it mandatory and pay is the care you're holding in front of everyone, that's going to mean a lot, especially when, like, again, as we've talked so much, every league has gone through its financial challenges because of COVID. 
But when you look at the NHL, which doesn't have these extra revenue streams like an NFL, an NBA, a Major League Baseball, I mean, you even think about like college athletics, as we've talked about with, you know, um, name, image, and likeness. Like you see the athletes who are getting NIL deals. Like you're seeing women's basketball, gymnastics, football, men's basketball. You're not seeing a lot of hockey, men or women, to get those mm-hmm. opportunities. And so as a sport and as a league, you cannot throw away money because it doesn't come in great supply, com- supply compared to others. And so when you put that out there, it's going to make more people say, I'll do this. But it goes back to something Duncan Keith, the Oilers defenseman, said. Like he felt like while he did this, he felt like he kind of was forced into doing it. But at the same time, it's like that's that choice of do you want to play and make money or do you not want to play and lose money? Well, and we have seen uh, in the NBA in particular that, you know, without having a hard mandate, definitely having disincentives, the threat of losing game checks has worked, right? Like, like the, I mean, the, but the week that they announced that, the NBA went from 90 to 95% vaccinated in like three days, <laughs> like almost Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think that, I mean, in addition to the threat of losing game checks, are NHL players more inclined to go with uh, a vaccination suggestion, if that's the word that we're using, is it also is, is part of it also because NHL players largely, you know, we're not we're not talking about the Austin Matthews or the Connor McDavid or the Artemi Panarins, like, but like the average NHL player has not made generational life changing salaries. I mean, I think the average salary in the NHL is, is, is a little over two million dollars, which is a crazy amount of money. But we're not talking Kyrie money, right? Pretty like this. I mean, you think about Carl Nassib, who is with the Oakland Raiders, and he's someone that gets used in a specialty role. Carl Nassib's salary on an NHL like payroll, he'd be the highest paid player by a lot. Far. <laughs> like, and then like Nate Taylor, who covers the Chiefs for us, just for our listeners, I mean, you two know this, but Nate is like one of my best friends, and we talk about this all the time with the Mahomes deal. Like Patrick Mahomes by himself in one year costs as much as an entire NHL salary cap, which is like wild. <laughs> but it's just like, let's put him on skate. Oh, wait, where he costs as much as our whole team. Let's not put him on skate. In fact, can we have him bankroll us and not have it count against the cap? But in all seriousness, I mean, like it is a league where you have to think about money differently. And so there is a story that we had here a couple weeks ago, well, now a little bit more than a month ago about how, you know, Kraken players are trying to find housing in Seattle. And I talked to one of them and he was just like, yeah, like you have to be smart about money. You're not going to make this kind of money forever. So like, it's why my wife and I are renting. And so the thing about a story like that is you want to be mindful because look, we do live in an era where right now rent has always been a thing. And yes, Kavitha, go ahead and say it. Rent is what? The rent is too damn high. I live in Manhattan, man. (laughs) I live in the Bay Area. The rent is too damn high. (laughs) I live in I live in Seattle where it's just like people are just like, wait, what do you do for a living again? Like people <laughs> can afford to pay these prices. And there are, but like it's still the idea that while you're writing that story, you want to be sensitive to the fact that like we are going through a rent issue in the United States and have been for some time and it's only exacerbated because of the pandemic, especially living on the West Coast, which you two know from your personal experience, like homelessness and housing supplies and, and housing insecurity has become one of the biggest conversations as is the conversation about affordability and wealth disparity. But that said, like when you hear players talk and it goes back to what you said at the beginning could be like 2 million a year, no matter who you are, that's still a great living. 
But like when you compare that to like when NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball player makes, like it is a bit of a different dynamic. And so when you're John Gruden like just NHL, threw away a hundred, John Gruden just threw away a hundred million dollar contract. There is not a single NHL team that has a, a, pay, a total payroll of a hundred million dollars. We are just no, talking the about highest they can go numbers. is eighty one five right. exactly. Like oh wow, a, so twenty million less than Jaron Jackson's extension. <laughs> Yes, Jason's just sitting there. Like, I like how it took Jaron Jackson for Jason to go like, wow, money <laughs> in the NHL works different. It's like, yes, thank you. It's like, that's what we should say. It's kind of like that scene in Sandlot where he's like, you don't understand. It wasn't my ball. So, lady, she signed her name, Ruthie, Jason, Ruth. Ball. That ball is worth more than your whole life. And it's like, oh, no kidding. But it all like that is why money not that money isn't important in every league or in every station of life but in the nhl when you compare it to the other leagues it is so different just because like again when you think about it like this Connor mcdavid is for a lot of people the best player in the league Connor mcdavid makes like 12 million a year how many NBA players make more than 12 million? Mm -hmm. And it's because those leagues are just different. And when you talk to GMs, you sign a player who makes more than 10 million a year. You're like, well, that's a significant part of your cap. And can you win in this and that? Whereas if you're in the NBA and it's like, oh, you got him for 10 million a year. That's a bargain. Yeah. He makes like Contavious Caldwell Pope money or actually <laughs> less than Contavious Caldwell Pope. That's... <laughs> I was going to yeah, say Gary, Gary Trent Jr. makes more money than the best than the best player in the in the, in the NHL. Well, I mean, but see again, like that's just where the leagues are just they are so different. Because I mean, you think about just even a rookie contract. Like you have rookies that make between nine twenty five and nine hundred fifty thousand a year. Whereas if it's just like, so what did Cole Anthony make in year one? A lot more than that. Ryan, you mentioned talking. You talked about you know finding housing in Seattle for the players and you've lived there before, but I'm just interested in just the food, the culture, just living in Seattle in 2021. It's one of my favorite cities to go to, but I haven't been since, well, there was no NBA team and <laughs> I haven't been since my NFL days when I would go to the uh, Seahawks games and enjoy the, you know, the lap. I don't know what the stadium's called anymore. <laughs> they all changed. Field, yeah. Yeah. I, think, I forgot what it was called when I was going, but just what's it been like being back in Seattle and just getting good seafood, I assume, and living up in the Pacific Northwest? I would say that compared to the first time, it's been this gradual reopening. I remember when we moved back, we had to run by uh, my bank for something, and we had to make an appointment to go in because everything was boarded up. You thought they were going to prepare for a storm, but like there was just no one there, and you're seeing a city sort of reopen and whatnot. And like, as you're seeing it, I mean, it's coming back to being the place that it was where, look, let's face it, when it's a gorgeous day in Seattle, you want to be in downtown, you want to be on or near the water, you want to be near the Cascades or Rainier or whatever. And it's a place that like, it is still this fun spot to, to go where anything you think of for food, like seafood, Italian, Hawaiian food, like teriyaki like oh, seattle has it. phenomenal food yes uh, i mean it, it really does have everything and like and that's kind of the wild thing about like the nhl this year is like this is a league that like does care about those things and so like if you take denver for example everybody in the nhl if they're a player went to a spot called north 
which is an Italian restaurant that is in Cherry Creek, and it did well. And so you're kind of like, what's going to be that sort of north for players in Seattle? And it's already like, who's to say what it could be? Because again, there is just so much there. But at the same time, like while there's so much there, you're still seeing this muted version of Seattle. Because if you saw Seattle pre-pandemic, I mean, who's to say like what you could go do and this and that? Because that's the other thing is like, Seattle is a place worth exploring. But here's the other thing, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for this too. Seattle is a place that if I was a strength and conditioning coach, like I would want to monitor what these guys eat because while there is some good food, there is some food that you can eat that tastes good, that is not good for you. One being top hot. I will argue that, and I don't give a lot of opinions. You two know this, but the one ignorant opinion I'll give is top hot is probably the best donut in America. And like, while it may not be healthy for you, it is a life changing thing. And if I'm an NHL coach and if I see my guys near top hot, I'm like, no, please, dear God. Stay away. But like, that's the thing about Seattle is there's going to be everything for everyone. No, that's rookie duties. Rookie's got to go over there and pick those donuts up. <laughs> Maybe, They're or, getting those know, donuts. Or, or you know what? They might have them <laughs> delivered because like, that's the thing is like, there are times where you go, you will be in, um, in the dressing room area after a game. Like I remember covering the ads and it was one of the last trips before COVID and they were playing the Predators. And so after we were done, I was just talking with a couple of players. And, like, they had this, like, gigantic spread. They had, like, barbecue. They had barbecue chicken. They had this. They had that. It's just like, huh, for all these stories you hear about, like, all we eat is turkey burgers and stuff, like, they know how to eat, too, and they know how to live. So they will be just fine going to Seattle. <laughs> well, I guess we got to wrap it up a l- in a little bit. But, what, like, just to kind of bring this full circle, sure, what, sure. Is your, what is your favorite thing about Seattle? Nothing. I hate it. I'll be, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Honestly, I'll say three things. Uh, Number one, Michael Sean Dugar. Uh, (laughs) No, no. Shout out actually, because Michael Sean, our lovely, our, our wonderful Seahawks reporter is like, he's, he's, he's a real, he's a real dude for sure. What cracks me up is when like, you'll meet people, especially whether they're like in or outside the outside, they're like, you know, Michael Sean Dugar, he's just such a good writer. And it's like, yeah, thank you, Captain Obvious. I know this. He's one of my best friends. Like, I mean, he was doing this at the Seattle PI, but like, it's like, thank you for discovering. It's kind of like when songs in A minor came out, like we all heard it. We're like, this stumps. And then nine months later, it goes mainstream. And everyone's like, this is so nice and groovy. And it's just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. well, here's, here's, yeah. the, here's the thing about Mike. Obviously, yeah, Mike is, is a phenomenal, very talented writer, all of that. We used to have Mike on, on on my last podcast on The Lead a lot when we would do a, a Seahawks story. And Mike just dropped, he has seen more movies than anybody I have ever met in my entire life. And in, in every- I got him beat. In, oh, well, in, I'm, I'm just going to say, because we also had you on the pod quite a bit. And in every 15 to 20 minute episode that we did with Michael Sean Dugar, uh, he would drop very casually at least- 10 deep cut movie references and like they're like if you want to go back and listen to those episodes there are some easter eggs for sure so the one thing i will tell before i answer the rest of this is so it was before it became public like he was one of the first people i called and said no i'm moving back because mm-hmm. like for the last two to three years he's like yo when you moving back home when you move back home because that's the funny thing is i didn't grow up in seattle but there are people who would like they look at me and think i was born a top mountain Rainier. And like with Mike, he was always like, man, when are you moving back? And so when I told him, he's like, man, when I heard that news, like 
I got the boogaloo, much like the granddad in Charlie <laughs> and the Chocolate Factory. Like, I got up and started moving, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, we're really talking about Grandpa Joe. But uh, so I thought that was pretty funny. Um, but no, seriously, like, I would say, like, the three things that are really cool about, like, sort of being back is, like, one, you know that this is a city that, like, it cares so much about sports, good, bad, or indifferent. And for what we do, that's always awesome to know that no matter what you write, it's going to be received. Now, granted, people may receive it well, they may not, but, you know, they're receiving it. The second thing about coming back is just it's such an interesting place from so many different, you know, vantage points. Because, like, we talked earlier about something like affordability, a story that we're working on doing is looking at how, how does ticketing work in a place like Seattle where you want this to be a team for everyone, but your business with a return on investment. How does that work in a city where wealth disparity is the biggest challenge currently in the market? And so the fact that that exists is what makes it interesting. And then, you know, the third, honestly, it's just, it's, it's a city that just genuinely like has everything. So if you look at Denver and Seattle, like Denver is a gorgeous place. But like when it's winter and the snow melts, mm-hmm. like it is brown as brown can be. And you're just like, that's pretty depressing. Whereas <laughs> if like you go to <laughs> Seattle, like there's evergreen, there's, there's mountains, there's rivers, there's lakes. I mean, like you genuinely just about have everything. And then the vibe is so chill. So yeah, I mean, it was just honestly, it would be everything. It's a good place to be. Yeah, I will say that I love I love Seattle and I am, you know, I am a New York supremacist. I am very tough. Really? On, I am very tough on cities and Seattle is a phenomenal You're a New York place. supremacist. I did not know this. <laughs> I'm shocked at that revelation. Yeah, next, next, next thing, next thing you're I thought I was like different. way too West Coast, but I mean, I get shut out on this one, yeah. But Seattle, in, in all seriousness, like... Seattle, phenomenal food, obviously known for its coffee, um, you know, world-class symphony, and I watch a lot of Frasier, so that probably has skewed my perception of Seattle as a city, uh, but it is it is a great place. They're lucky to have you, uh, and I'm looking forward to continuing to read uh, your coverage of this brand new team, which probably has the best logo in all of the NHL. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. This is fun. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Culture Calculus. I'm Kavitha Davidson for Jason Jones from The Athletic. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to give us a rating if you can as well. And make sure to tune in every Thursday. We'll have a different episode, a different guest, and a different topic at hand. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. Hey, football fans, this is Diana Rossini from The Athletic. Get the top stories in pro football snapped directly to your inbox with our latest NFL newsletter, Scoop City. Jacob Robinson and I will bring you the daily scoop of top NFL articles, posts, and podcasts every Monday to Friday. Sign up for free now at theathletic.com backslash scoop.